When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Something, I think something followed me because um, not long after, and this gets back at the idea that you maybe experience these things in your so mind. Do you think someone, something perhaps followed you after the Queen Mary or from the Queen Mary? Or? I think so. It was not long after that, that my girlfriend and I were in bed and we were there. We have the, we had a, a, a cat and a dog sleeping on the bed with us who were, who were like, extremely high strung like if you you know you like clear your throat and they lose their mind they get running like there's a nuclear bomb dropping right so we're we're all lying in bed and there was a crash at the foot of the bed ariel and i both felt the vibration in the room that was it was so loud as i described it it sounded like a, a metal shelving unit filled with shit had fallen down the animals didn't move at all they didn't hear it. It was so loud that I immediately was like, what fell? I kept racking my brain to think of what in this bedroom could have made that noise. And and, and, and there was nothing. There was nothing there. But the fact that the animals didn't react was really strange. And then a few nights later, I heard it again. I was coming out of the shower and I heard it from the bedroom. And, and my girlfriend was in the bedroom. And I was like, hey, did you hear it? She said, what? She didn't hear it that time. I'll say, like, my girlfriend's also sensitive. I don't know that she's as sensitive as I am, but um, but we've had two Airbnb experiences. One of them was in Joshua Tree, and it involved um, what I guess people would call an elemental, like like a spirit of some kind that um, was uh, very, very interested in her. <laughs> this is happening when you're, like, sleeping right so you're you you, you kind of go like okay i guess i'm just having weird dreams or like i'm waking up a lot and like these are not normal dreams like they it 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 it, it feels you know i'm dreaming of a of a of an aggressive jealous masculine entity that isn't human it's not a ghost i can't explain why i know that i just do that has been watching us the whole time we've been here coveting my girlfriend and, and I'm having these dreams, hallucinations of, of telling it to back off. And then later, her saying, I had a horrible dream last night about, I don't know how to explain it. It wasn't a ghost, was some kind of very jealous male entity that was brushing my hair and whispering in my ear and saying to me, you know, I'm not Daniel, right? And her saying, yes, I know you're not Daniel. And those parallel experiences that were the same, we perceived the same thing in the dreams, in, two, in our dream states. It does feel a little bit more like material proof where we both had independent experiences that we then related to each other later and were stunned to hear that we'd had the same experiences. I can't explain that.
I'm Jim Perry. This is Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. This time, part two of two with Daniel Noah, the followed one. Next on Euphemet. Broad masonry holds the amber glow of the Roosevelt Hotel, Spanish tile keeping its secret a story of human experience walled away into mood light and comfort, jazz and sex, smoke and syrup, running through us as the best of dreams. Anyone who has spent time in LA knows that there is a glow, a radiance not unlike that from the sun that sits thinly against the concrete and beach, a salty warm hue stretching from the sea and seeping into the valley, welcoming with vibrance and warmth that betray its own age. It suggests a timelessness, energy that not unlike the most haunted of all places, wears its spirited past as if new skin glistening in the California light. I'm back here with writer and film producer Daniel Noah, who I've discovered is not alone. Something seems to be following him. Well, if I have something, that theoretically means I could get rid of it. And do I want to? And the answer is no, I don't. <laughs> because this is fascinating. I, I don't want it to stop. I, you know, once you've, I think you said earlier, I can't remember the words you used, but, you know, it's like once you've, you know, glimpsed into the abyss, once you've taken the red pill. There's no going back. You can't, you can't unknow what you know. You can't unexperience what you've experienced. And, and, um, you know, if someone did come to me and say, you know, hey, I can, you know, drink this elixir or say these words or do this ritual and it'll all, the thing that's following you will stop following you. I don't think I would do it. Cause I'm curious. I'm very curious. I mean, it was William Peter Blatty was asked once, you know, why, why do people love horror? And he said, because if there's a devil, it means there's a God. I'm wondering if you can speak on how horror fits into this. I mean, I'd always loved horror, always. It started with The Twilight Zone when I was five years old. I look back at these sort of milestones in my life. By the time I was five, I'd gone through way more um, seismic shifts than any child should have to go through in terms of like moving and family changing and people coming and going. And, and um, there was a morning when I woke up too early on Saturday, expectant to find Saturday morning cartoons on the TV, but it was like 4 a.m. And I turned on the TV. It was one of those old tube TVs. And, and um, it was the Twilight Zone. It was the pilot. Where is everybody? 
which you know I always felt like was meant to be, you know. And uh, and and I remember at five, in watching this thing that's way over my head, but I was so exhilarated at the feeling of disorientation. I'd never seen it depicted in anything the way that I felt. And I was there was no turning back. I could not get enough Twilight Zone at that point. I just anything horror was incredible to me. When I was nine, um, I had a, a kind of touch and go relationship with my stepfather um, at that time, and in an effort to bond with me, he took me to a PG movie called Poltergeist, <laughs> and it totally fucked me up. I mean, like like for years, I couldn't sleep alone in a room, and and when I revisited the movie much later, I looked at it and went like, "Oh right, of course!" Like like. It was about a family living in a chaotic house where sometimes there was outbursts of anger. And, you know, like, of course that affected me. That was my life. The the third one, which was the major one, was September 11th. It was downtown. Experienced it. I was in the middle of it. And it was, you know, for people who weren't there, it is hard to explain how traumatic it was. I and mean, it was like Pearl Harbor, you know, and, and, and we, you know, we all, it was a very, very surreal experience. Um, there were so many unsettling circus like morbid things going on that I'm constantly surprised. I've never seen anyone write about them or make a film about them. I mean, there were so many weird things going on in the days following September 11th in New York. But, uh, a couple weeks later, I'd be curious to go back and look at the actual date. The first movie I went to see was Jeepers Creepers. It scared me way too much. Like, 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 you know, again, a, a grown man. I mean, I was younger then, but but uh, I had these terrible nightmares about the creeper over and over again, and 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 I was like, "Good God, like this is ridiculous!" Like I, and then I, this light bulb went off, like Poltergeist and like Twilight Zone. Of course, I'm obsessing about this. Jeepers Creepers is about two people innocently driving down the road, and all of a sudden, this big machine, this this apparatus, comes up crashes into them it's driven by someone who just wants them to die is filled with rage they weren't expecting it they have no idea where it came from why it's happening um it was september 11th it was exactly what it felt like to be in new york on september 11th and the next thing i realized was it had taken my mind off september 11th it had given me a safe place to process these feelings and it was shortly after that that I remember saying to the same best friend who got mad at me that I was a believer, I think I want to dedicate my life to horror. I think I want that to be the thing. Um, and, uh, and I did. You know, I never turned back after that. These are the reasons that I thought I wanted to bring horror stories into the world. I believe, and I still believe that horror does provide a safe place to work through fears. And, and I think, you know, I'm not the first to draw the analogy to a roller coaster. I personally hate roller coasters, but a roller coaster, um, puts your body into a situation where it is receiving danger signals that tell your brain you're about to die. But you're not. You're safe. You know you're safe. So it's a way of confronting death. That's what I believe a roller coaster does. I think a horror film is similar. I think it allows you to practice things. It allows you to practice loss and practice confronting demons. What you know? What the creeper to me was the hijackers, but the creeper to 
you know, a guy who's sitting at the pool right now might be his abusive father. It might, it's, it's, you know, you project your personal demons onto these things. So I know that some people hate horror films, just like I hate roller coasters and that's fine, but some people find them medicinal. And so I think they make the world a better place in that respect or any kind of horror story. Does that reflect anything from your own personal experiences? Are you trying to say something with that? I don't know. It's a question I'm asking myself a lot lately. When we did um, the Visitations podcast, we would ask most of the guests if they were believers. And I found it really interesting that it was split almost 50-50. Panos Cosmatos and Mike Flanagan do not believe Panos is hostile toward <laughs> anyone who believes. Yeah. Mike says, I want to believe. Um, Analilia Mirpour believes. Guillermo del Toro believes. Um, it's really interesting. You know, the, the, this. I think this is a really fascinating question. And I've thought a lot about um, Jacques Tourner, who made Cat People. And um, I can never find where I got this. Cause I, it's, I read it somewhere and I have a book on him and it's not in the book, but I'd read at some point that he was a passionate believer in the paranormal. And it was why he made these movies. I don't know if you ever saw his film curse of the demon. Um, but that is a story of a, of a debunker who, um, uh, goes up against a, an alleged like satanic call or a pagan call that claims that they have the power to, to, um, you know, cast spells and curses. And he's, he's, he's so confident. He says, curse me. I don't believe it. And the guy's like, okay. And then by the end of it, he's like, holy shit, this is real. And I think, you know, that's Tornare, I think was, I think is part of what drove him was that he believed that stuff. So, so I, you know, I, I do think about that all the time. And, and I, you know, when I think about the films that we make and, and, and I wonder if on some level I am trying to, get people to take it a little more seriously and the oh see they don't want us talking about this (laughs) yes nothing there what was that one or was it You should leave that plug in. You think so? Yeah. Okay. Because someone might be calling. Okay. okay. I'll play along here. I mean, just to, to, to get off track for a second, because it, it came up organically. Yeah. When I, when I do debate with people about this stuff, um, do I need to wait for you to get back in? Okay. Um, People are, are evidence-based, right? And, and it, you know, Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. What, what I have now come to understand is that sometimes extraordinary evidence is experiential. There's no way that I can prove to you the things that I've felt, but I know that I felt them. And so something that has been on my mind a lot lately, and that's why I'm asking you to leave that phone plugged in, is that the the standard of scientific practice is that you have a, a series of uh, assumptions that you 
methodically prove one at a time to prove a thesis, right? And and if any one of those elements is not provable, you walk away, right? You say no. So to put this into another way, when you're presented with a possibility of something that might be new, a new idea, you are asked to say yes or no to that possibility. Standard practice is that if you can't prove it, you say no. But what I've been thinking about lately is, what if you choose to say yes, even without the proof? The, the shortcoming of the scientific method is that by saying no to possibility, if you think of it as a set of stairs, right? Like each, each possibility leads to another possibility. If you don't go up the stairs, you will never find out what's at the top of the stairs, right? And so if, if that phone just now that rang and there was no one on the other end of the line, not the first time that's happened to me in a hotel, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> get to that in a minute. <laughs> um, you just said no. You unplugged the phone. But I asked you, no, please say yes to this possibility. And if you're always saying yes, you will find yourselves having extraordinary experiences that you would not have had if you were demanding extraordinary evidence. Does that make sense? Now, <laughs> with all this stuff, yeah, I have, I have wondered about um, if there is a Jacques Tourner-like quality to it for me, or, or if that might creep up a little bit. And I mean, Color Out of Space, the movie that we just released a couple weeks ago, is very much about all this. I mean, it is about a, an, an alien that is so much, uh, it's so strange to us that we can't even perceive it. And and um, you can read the story, you can watch the film, but but you know, at the end of the story, the laws of physics begin to warp. And, and uh, everything that we think we understand about the way gravity, movement, work, color, sound, smell, it all becomes scrambled at the end because we're so arrogant to think that this system is the only system. How is, uh, do you feel like you're sensitive? Do I? Or, or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, depending on how much I'm tuning in, if that makes sense. Um, I th you know, it takes, when it's not on my mind, I think it takes something very strong to get my attention. Yeah. Um, but when I am sort of, like when the antenna's up, I do feel like I have a pretty good read <laughs> on, you know, whether or not there's a vibe in a room or, or not. I mean, it's certainly... There, I, I'm having a reaction to something. I guess there's no way I can say with certainty what it is. Um, and I've been in certain places, like the Queen Mary, which is where I had the second terrifying... Sorry, excuse me. It, it was the first terrifying experience that I had was at the Queen Mary. Um, it was the second paranormal experience, or the second big paranormal experience that I had. Um, but, you know, I, there, there are certain places like the Queen Mary where... Uh, I, I have no desire to go back there. It's <clears throat> not fun. It's not a fun, exciting, like Spielbergian adventure feeling. It's like 
toxic and horrible and sick and and I I would go. I mean, you know, we did we talk about going? Yeah, we yeah, about yeah, it yeah maybe. But yeah. I yeah, I'm glad I, mean, I didn't choose that. I mean, I, if you didn't want to, I would have done it. But it's not like I'm, I think something's going to happen. But but um, you know what happened to us there was. And that was one of the places where I realized that maybe I was sensitive because I was with three other people who were all real chill, and I was going like, "Hey, this is not okay. <laughs> like, like we need to get out of here. Or I need to get out of here. Like, this is I need to. It's this is a kind of cellular level. When you feel this stuff, and, um, you know, like an animal that's just sensing danger or something, something toxic that you just don't want anywhere near you." So we went to the Queen Mary, my partners and I. We were developing a movie that was, it's no longer happening, but a movie that was going to be set on and shot on the Queen Mary. They were very excited about this. So they, they were like, you guys are free to come here anytime you want. And they comped us rooms and they said, you can you know, stay for a few days. And we, and we were there for two nights. And they said, listen, we, we've got our number one ghost tour guy. He really wants to give you guys a tour. He's going to give you a private tour. It's going to be just the four of you. But um, he can't come till tomorrow night. So tonight, just hang out. Tomorrow night, you'll get the whole tour. So we were like, cool. So that night, we were hanging out. We were talking. Got to be kind of late. And we were like, I don't know if we want to wait for tomorrow night. So we took ourselves on a little ghost tour. So we, we went down into the engine rooms where we know that they do the ghost tours and, and these rooms are really dramatic. You know, they're, um, they're, it's a, you know, black steel and they're very, they're a lot, like we were saying earlier, like cl- clearly like this is meant to make you feel afraid. And, um, so we walked through and we read all the plaques and we're like, oh, whatever, this is, you know, it feels like Disneyland. But we noticed that it kept going and there were areas that were not part of the ghost tour that we could access. They were not meant for people to visit. So we decided to keep exploring. So we kept walking through the ship. It's enormous. I mean, it's, I, I don't know exactly how big it is. It's like a small neighborhood. You know, you could walk. We walked and walked and walked. And now we're walking through engine rooms that have not been kept up, that have not, that are not for tourists, not for ghost tours. And it was creepy back there. And as we're walking, we start hearing this metallic banging that was unbelievably loud. And, and as we're approaching it, it's getting louder, of course. And we got to a, a place on the ship where it appeared that they had abandoned a construction project. Like it looked like maybe they were trying to turn it into a food court or something. So there was like carpeting on the floor and, but you could tell that there'd been no one working in there for a while. And this was where the banging was coming from. And we walked through this giant room and we hit, literally hit a dead end. It was a wall. And the banging was coming from behind the wall. You could feel it. And it was loud. The wall was vibrating. It was, it was so loud that you wanted to like plug your ears. We were like, this is it. I guess we're never going to find out what that is. Surely someone else is hearing this. It's so loud. All right, we're done. Let's go. We could not find our way back the way we came. We, it made no sense. We were, we turned around. We're like, 
there were several different pathways that we could take. None of them looked familiar. We would start down one. We go, this isn't. Wait a minute. We weren't. We haven't been here before. Let's find the one that we know. So we, we could not figure out how to get back. Okay. We go back into the area where the banging is, and we notice that there's an elevator. And I'm like, oh, thank God. Okay. It's like a little service elevator. So we go and we're like, there's no way this thing works. Sure enough, the elevator comes. We get in. It only goes down. Sounds like a horror movie, right? <laughs> There's nowhere to go but down. It's literally the only way out is through. So we go down, and now we're at an even lower level of the ship. This is the part where I think, you know, it's like submerged in the ocean, probably. I don't know. I don't know the terminology. And this is really unsafe. Uh, it's it's um, uh, planks of wood. And, I mean, like you know, like you could, like the floor is like rotten, and it just it just felt like an accident waiting to happen. It it, it was it felt very dangerous. Now the banging is even loud. The banging's down here. We realize. The other thing that was weird is that there were these bright flood lamps everywhere, which we couldn't figure out why <laughs> this place was illuminated. We're like, okay, we got to keep going. Eventually, we're going to figure out a, a way to get back up to the hotel. And we keep going, and the banging's getting louder, and it's getting louder, and it's getting louder. And we finally come to an archway to uh, a, a room where it is so obvious that the banging is coming from that room. And the other thing that's coming from that room is men's voices. And we all went, oh, fucking thank God. Okay, this explains everything. They're, they, in fact, are doing construction down here. That's why the lights are on. That's what that noise is, and they're going to tell us how to get out. Even though we shouldn't have been down here, fine. We're going to get a slap on the wrist. And so we start toward the room, and my friend and I, both, it was the two of us, we just inexplicably just stopped. Get, get that hair on the back of your neck feeling, that cellular level experience that we all had in the Stanley. Although I now have come to realize that I have that way more than the people that I'm with most of the time. There was a little hesitation. We're like, okay, no, this is crazy. Let's go in the room. We can hear the dudes talking. And, um, and we go in, and the second we entered, the voices stop. And as I'm sure you've guessed, there was no one in there. The banging was in this room. We could not figure out where it was coming from. And um, we look around and we see way, way up at the top of the ceiling, there is a fabricated corpse strung up, spread eagle, hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> we're like, what is going on in here? Um, and, and we're like, what did, did we all heard those men talking, right? Yes. Where are they? We're calling out. Hello. Hello. There's no response. Now, this is the point when my friends think this is really fun. And actually, they had a Ouija board. And one of them said, let's get out the Ouija board. And I was like, no way. Because what I felt that none of them felt was terror. I felt very, very unsafe. Something was not cool. Uh, Ava, the little girl from the Stanley, was a really warm feeling. We all felt uh, safe and safe with her and, and uh, almost like a parental kind of 
wanting to make sure she was okay and like like I would I would like to go see her again at some point I'd like to say hello to Ava and see how she's doing this was toxic this was black death like it was I, I just I wanted to get away uh, so I was like guys we gotta go so we we through the room there was a way of like climbing out back onto the proper ghost tour where there was an elevator that we were able to come up out of and we got back to the hotel so I went to my room that night feeling very rattled, like really. And it's funny, you know, I'm like in my 40s. Like I, I felt like a little kid, like, mom, can you turn the light on? Like, I, like really feeling scared. And, um, and I'm starting to, to drift off to sleep. And again, this is one of these things that sounds like a cheesy horror movie. But there were three knocks on my door. And they weren't knocks. The, it was violent. Like it was, <laughs> this is why I told you to leave the phone on. It, it, it was, it was so loud that if I felt like probably like, you know, the door was shaking on its hinges. It was angry. It was very, very angry. My first thought was my friends are messing with me because they know that I'm scared because I told them I was scared. Um, and it maybe took me about 30 seconds to work up the courage to go to the door. And I finally did. And there was nothing there. Um, again, I'm having this cellular dog whistle-like feeling. Something is wrong here. Um, I lock the door. I'm like, please just go to sleep. I just want to be morning, you know. And I'm lying there. And then the phone starts ringing. And every time I answer it, there's silence. And it wouldn't stop. And I finally unplugged it because I couldn't take it anymore. I was so freaked out and I went to sleep. So in the morning we all meet for breakfast and I say, ha 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 guys, very funny. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know? and, and I say, I know you were messing with me. And they're like, we weren't. So all I can say is if they were all these years later, they still haven't told me <laughs> that it was them. <laughs> and all of them know my story. It, it, it wasn't them. It wasn't them. It could have been someone else. You know, I, I obviously is a knock on the door and a phone call and some phone calls. None of those things are, you know, inexplicable. But that's what I said earlier, that sometimes the extraordinary evidence is something that you feel you can't explain. And it didn't feel good in there. It felt very, very terrible. Um, the next day I went to the desk and I said, do you keep a call log? Do you, if someone was calling and like from room to room, would you have a record of it? And they said, yes. And, and they, they pulled the records and they had no record of any calls going to my room the night before. And the goal of this tour is for everybody to go home with some evidence, or I call it data, to review. And hopefully find something really awesome that you want to share with us. And it could be a documentation of a... So the next night, we go on the real ghost tour. He takes us on the tour. We can't say, oh, yeah, we were here last night. <laughs> so we're pretending like we're seeing it all for the first time. The, the finale of the tour is the room that we escaped into the night before. Okay. It's over. And, and I'm chatting with the guy. And I say to him, I said, listen, I ask you a question. Why do you do this? Why is this your job? Because I was told he'd been there for like 25 years or 30 years or something. And he said, uh, oh, nobody ever asks me that. He said, I'll tell you. When I was 12, I came here with my parents and I did a ghost tour and I felt a hand on my shoulder and I turned around. There was no one there. 
And ever since that time, I've been desperately trying to recreate that experience. And I can't tell you why. I've always just felt called back to this ship. I feel like it's my home. It had a little bit of a Jack Torrance kind of a feeling to it. It, it, it felt a little icky. <laughs> I, and, uh, but again, I mean, like, I'm feeling like this whole place is icky. So I'm like, who would want to be around this energy? And I say, well, so has anything happened? And he said, no. No, believe me, I wish, you know, every night. And I'm thinking, <laughs> my God, if you only knew what happened last night. And he goes, I'll tell you what, though. Funny you should ask me that today because something actually happened last night. And he pointed to the opening to that big room. And he said, you see that room over there? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, they're doing some work. And they just took that wall out a couple days ago. That room's been totally blocked off. And last night, a bunch of us heard this metallic banging coming out of there. And uh, we have no idea what it was. There's a, a, a book that's very important to me called Darkness Visible by William Styron, uh, who wrote Sophie's Choice. When he was in his 50s, I'm probably going to maybe butcher some of the details here, but he, um, he quit drinking and he was hit with uh, a wave of, of uh, extreme depression that ended up hospitalizing him. And he, you know, it was, it was a harrowing, he was suicidal. He, he finally got straight. They let him out. He survived. And he realized that A, he had been self-medicating. And B, he had written about depression over and over again without ever understanding why. And that when he quit drinking, his medicine was taken away and the dormant disease was allowed to flourish. He realized that he must have known on some level that it was in him and it was the reason that he kept writing that story over and over again. I've thought about that in relation to my own fascination with tales of the supernatural, which I thought was about wish fulfillment and, um, uh, you know, a kind of having a, a, a sort of caring relationship to humanity, a, a, a compassionate relationship. Yeah, people want to believe that they're going to be with their loved ones, and that's a good, it's a good thing. Let them think it. But I've wondered now <laughs> if maybe it was more of a William Styron kind of a thing, that on some level I knew that I was a sensitive and that there maybe was something happening around me that I was experiencing on some level that I was denying and that that may have led to my interest in these stories. So weeks later, and while I'm working on the edit for this episode, Daniel reaches out, he texts me, and he really just needs to talk through some stuff. So I said, yeah, let's do it. There he is. Okay. Hey. Uh, how are you doing today? <clears throat> um, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a different world since you and I last spoke. So, um, that's a loaded question. Yeah, it is. I think I just have a few questions for you. Sure. You know, the other day when you texted me and you said it very kindly, you know, very empathetically, hey, listen, I think there's more to this. I think there's more context to be found with what my relationship really is. And so over the preceding days, as I continued editing this episode, 
I started wondering, has your impression of the nature of your relationship with the phenomenon changed since we last spoke? I don't know if it's changed so much as evolved. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I think um, I think that you know you caught me and cont- continue to catch me in in the midst of um, a, a pretty long term evolution of thinking on everything that's going on. And um, for whatever reason, in in the recent months, I've found myself really diving pretty proactively into trying to understand all of this and thinking about it and poking at it and probing it. And um, so I, I, what, what dawned on me and the reason that I texted you was that I had this revelation that in retrospect seems so obvious. I'm almost embarrassed that it took me so long to, to see it. And it's that the reason that the experiences that I've had might feel so cliched in terms of tropes of ghost stories that we've seen in movies and read in books and so forth is that whatever this phenomenon is might be tailoring the way that it presents itself to me in a language it knows I'll understand. (laughs) (laughs) It all seems so logical, right? (laughs) It does. (laughs) It does. And, you know, and I got to thinking about how the, the, the guy at the top of the stairs at the Stanley hotel, that thing that he said, when I asked him what the ghost looked like, he said, I saw it in my mind, not with my eyes. And how all of the experiences that I've had and that Ariel's had with me have all been auditory and dreams and this idea that maybe when these things um, for whatever reason want to make contact or want to make an impression that they might start rooting around in our brains to, to understand who we are and what presses our buttons and then to project an experience directly into our noggin rather than presenting itself through, you know, but, but literally manifesting visually or, or um, you, you know, a, 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 sort of circumventing the five senses in a way to, wow. to just get, get right into the organ that's supposed to interpret that data. We normally take it in through the, the five senses, but maybe they're, they're utilizing the sixth sense and, um, and and how that would tie back to what you've focused on as the sort of title or angle on everything that we talked about, the glow concept that as, as you know, you and I have been talking a lot about John Keel recently, <clears throat> which, you know, as I'm a fairly new student of, and um, you know, he, there's a passage in operation Trojan horse that, just rocked me on my heels. I don't have it in front of me, but where he essentially talks about how um, the brain is a receiver and it's tuned into only a very uh, finite, um, a very narrow little um, corridor in terms of all of the information that's out there to be received. that, That there are some of us who, for whatever reason, might be able to take in a little bit more 
than the average person. He says it's one third of the population. I don't know where he arrives at that that percentage, but but it, it, as he so beautifully puts it, for those of us who are are amongst the one third, um, the evidence is is concrete and irrefutable. For those of you who are amongst the two thirds majority, nothing that we ever say or do will convince you. And, and when I read that, it, it really um. It was like a tsunami of of realization that um, right. you know that that whatever whatever these um, whatever these beings are, wherever they live, wherever they exist, they're on a higher plane than we are, and they clearly are able to act and interact on a much broader corridor of the spectrum of data and information and maybe when they spot those of us who have that slightly broader receptor is when they go all in why i have no idea <laughs> but but the, the, this idea why do some people see ufos others sasquatch others loch ness monster i heard you interviewed on uh, a podcast recently jim where you they did a game with you where they asked you to list off all the things that you believe or don't believe in oh i hated that game well i know why you hated it because they didn't give you a chance to provide any context for your answers you said yes to almost everything which on its face probably makes you seem like a kook but what i was reading behind your answers was that these questions were so incomplete what what they were really asking or rather what you were answering was well, this idea that i'm talking to you about right now which is that whatever these things are they might present in an infinite number of ways to human beings so do you believe that there's a loch ness monster swimming around loch ness i don't know if you do what i interpreted you to be saying was i believe that that people have seen that Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, I'm a guy that grew up on ghost stories and, and I've attributed my love of ghost stories to maybe being some sort of preternatural awareness of what was coming for me later in life as I invoked Darkness Visible as an example of that, that sometimes maybe we're aware of something that's that's stirring around our psyche only to manifest many decades later and that maybe that's why I had been attracted to ghost stories because I was destined to have ghost encounters but then and later started to think no maybe the reason I've had ghost encounters is that I was predisposed to have them <laughs> and and if I'd grown up obsessing about Sasquatches I would be in Oregon right now trying to you know communicate with Woodnocks and I'd be getting responses and so that's what my text was about yeah well, it, it had such an importance to it. You know, one of my questions I considered asking, and maybe you can comment on it if you feel like, is why did it feel so important to create essentially an addendum to what we've already done? And, and why do you feel it's so important to share this evolved perspective of your relationship with this phenomenon? As I continue to look at this and try and understand the meaning of the experiences that I've had and may or may not continue to have, I don't know if I will, 
I've struggled with how much to talk about it, both in my personal life and in my public life. And, yeah. and you know, the decision to, to talk to you was a big one for me. And, and you know, I, I, although I'm, I'm a creative person and I live in a community of very bohemian, open-minded people, I still have to contend with the raised eyebrow when and there's still I, a line. Yeah. There's, there's a line still, there. yeah. Yeah. There's still a ner- nervousness around, around sharing how I feel and what I believe that comes up all the time. And, um, so when I do talk about these things in, in my personal life and, and I've started little by little to, you know, bring my close intimates into this because it is a kind of awakening for me and it is a huge part of who I am now. And it's a huge part of what I think about and how I view everything. Even in my work, I'm a guy who, who develops motion pictures and television shows that are about the supernatural. And I've found myself starting to assess material through the lens of whether or not I think they're honest portrayals of these things <laughs> rather than, you know, where they're just a good story. You know, I, I, I got a Sasquatch script in the other day that I thought was fantastic, but because it didn't incorporate telepathy, I thought I can't do this. Why? <laughs> right. It was, this is insane. This is insane. So, you know, I, I feel like I have to start bringing people into it. And when, when I do, I get very the whole spectrum of responses. One of them that I get is, um, why are you doing this? Kind of what, like, what, why, why are you so, um, uh, why are you prioritizing this exploration in such a big part of your life? And the answer is that once you realize that there is an answer, how can you think of anything but? Mm. That, that, you know, I've been one of these people walking around all of my life kind of complacent. I, you know, I've never had a very rich spiritual life. I've never been part of any kind of organized uh, spiritual practice or anything. I mean, I meditate and I read about things, but that's about the extent of it. And, and the, you know, the minute something happens to you that breaks with your understanding of reality, of the way that things work, you there's no turning back you, you, you're either gonna you're, you're either gonna put blind yourself to it deliberately because you can't handle it think about about joe pantaleano's character in the matrix the guy who says you know hey is there any way i can untake the blue pill i'd rather just be a rich guy living in the matrix with no awareness that there's a bigger picture right, right. I, think that, I think that's most of us but you know there are some of us who who take the blue pill and and go holy shit this is everything. There's no, like, how can anything else matter once you realize yeah. that we might be living in some kind of a matrix? And, and as crazy as it sounds, here's the thing. None of us has any clue what's happening. No one, not the most evolved uh, practitioners of, of uh, uh, meditation, not, not, the, the, not the Pope, not the most accomplished particle physicists I, 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 no one knows and and what you start to wrap your head around is you just just literally step outside and look up as you're always saying don't, don't stop looking up you, you, what, what what's what you start to realize is 
there is an answer. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's that this is a vast galaxy. I don't know if it's Einstein's theory of relativity. I don't know if it's the you know, classic Christian Judeo interpretation of heaven and hell. I don't know what it is, but, but there is an answer. There is no possibility that there's no answer. And once you accept that and start looking at the evidence, the evidence is overwhelming that there are multiple realities and, and that we're only in one. And, 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 this strange phenomenon of the more you look at it, the more you see it, which almost feels like part of the design is, is, you know, you're suddenly, you're suddenly swirling down a, it's like you're in a bathtub that someone pulled the plug out of and there's, and you're swirling down the drain and there's just no stopping it. And, 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 you know, what, what, when you go down that drain, what's down there? I don't know. I don't know. As I said to you in our last conversation, maybe I'll find out when I die maybe i don't expect to find out before then but um but so this is a very long-winded way of saying that when i spoke to you i was sort of i, I felt I almost felt like a newborn that had just been born into this awareness that there's something more going on but i hadn't had the time to really process it and 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 after talking to you and and maybe in some ways because of talking to you uh, and, and I've actually come to think that you reaching out to me, as you did on Twitter, when I had no, I'd not heard of your podcast, I didn't, didn't know, you know, I didn't know much about the world that you're in, in some ways was meant to be because you, you know, as I started listening to you from it, deciding if I wanted to be on your show or not, I, you know, it, I started getting exposed to these ideas I'd never heard before. And it led to a lot of reading and a lot of, uh, you know, new friendships and, and, um, so it's, it's all started to feel like it's connected to me. And, and so I started to feel very bothered by the idea that you'd given me this chance to tell my story publicly, which I accepted because I feel that I want other people who might be having similar experiences to know that they're not alone and that they're not crazy and to, you know, to maybe be part of a community as I've heard you talking about many times, but, but that maybe it was more than that, that, you know, you, you gave me a gift of, of, of a window into a whole new way of looking at reality that I hadn't had time to process in order to make it part of the narrative that you'd given me the chance to tell. Oh, well, I mean, thank you, man. I mean, I think what you're doing now is, is giving others that chance to, to glean into this other reality tunnel. And, and that takes a lot of courage. And especially in places where folks have careers that they've developed and they've <laughs> developed brands. Thankfully, you make, you know, stories and films with, you know, aliens that merge in, <laughs> merge family members together in horrific ways. So <laughs> I think I think you're still gonna be on brand, man. I think like, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, the last thing I was gonna mention was um one of the reasons why I really wanted to take this as a phone call was I think it really spoke to what was happening to us in that hotel room and what was happening to me before and after you left, which was a string of random phone calls from yeah. no one. Yeah. And I include in this episode earlier on, 
that whole exchange. Mm. But do you think that, I mean, is it possible? Is there any way that we could imagine a world where that phone call was us right now calling back then? <laughs> who, who am I to say? I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm way too humbled by all of this to, to even dare to speculate what that phone call was. Um, uh, it was, it, it was so intentional, the timing of it, that, um, that it, it's very hard for me to dismiss it as coincidence. And even when it happened, I remember having a little spidey tingle of, oh, I think, I think someone's calling us right now <laughs> to make sure that we take this all very seriously. And, and, um, uh, you know, when you told me that you continued to get calls or, or a call, or whatever it was later that night, uh, that really even further reinforced that you, you were, you were having the experience I had in the Queen Mary replicated for you. And, and on a day that I was in your hotel room, it, how can you ignore that? How can you ignore that? It's, it's like I, I, I said to you in, in that little stretch of conversation that you included in part one of the, of the, episodes is is that at a certain point the insistence that things are coincidence becomes more outlandish than accepting the hypothesis that they're not coincidence and right. there the, the fact that you and i were having conversation about phantom phone calls and phantom phone calls came through it's insane to dismiss that as a coincidence yeah 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 well how do you feel? How do I feel? Um, it's it's all it's all very exciting, <laughs> honestly. I, you know, I I um I don't find it scary. I find it thrilling, and um and I find that I'm um insatiable about in, you know new information now I'm, I'm i just signed up for gaia and uh you know i've got, i've got a mountain of books that i've recently ordered that i'm f f pounding and outlining and taking notes i feel like i'm i'm 16 again you know like reading about harold pinter or you know or I'm like discovering some new way of thinking that i can't get enough of and, and that's kind of where i am now i mean it's it's um it's it's very thrilling and and i think that it'll be a part of my life forever will you be going back to the queen mary i don't want to but i, I you know i i i'm not a, it, it it makes me uncomfortable but i mean if someone asked me to for some reason i wouldn't avoid we'll, it we'll, we'll go we'll go <laughs> we'll go we'll experience it and and we'll see what it has to offer okay 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 all right i'm in thanks daniel thank you Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemat. For more of Daniel Noah, check out the works of Spectre Vision and his podcast, Visitations. His new film, Color Out of Space, was just released and is available widely online. Thank you to our sponsors, Spotify and Anchor. 
For everything Euphemet, including how you can subscribe to the show, links to our Patreon and social media, visit euphemet.com. This Thursday, we present Night Drift. 7 p.m. Pacific Time, 10 p.m. Eastern. Join us for a celebration of 90s era overnight live talk radio hosted by myself with guest Ryan Sprague and Sapphire Sandalo. Please tune in at calypsoradio.org for this very special live presentation by Euphemen and myself. Please come join us. And until then, I'm Jim Perry. Keep looking up. Floating in our veins, players in a spot.